Rabbi, 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 it's Mr. Rabbi. He is here with the priest. What's up, man? What's up, Father? How are you? Um, buddy, listen, I, I know you're feeling pretty relaxed now. You got through the big, uh, you just finished your Super Bowl. I got a Super Bowl that's starting, well, soon-ish. Um, but you look very relaxed, very ready to roll. I think you're ready to talk about some, some good relevant topics today. What should we talk about today, buddy? Uh, you know, given the, given the situation that we find ourselves in around the country, uh, um, uh, it'd be interesting to talk about how we can separate church from state and what some of those implications are and um, um, any leaders out there that, I don't know, maybe is a Episcopal priest that's going into a Senate race. Well, maybe if we got an Episcopal priest who's going to a Senate race, this person, he or she, could then lead us and show us how actually our work within the church or in the temple or in the mosque could help inform the choices we make in, within the political landscape. I mean, because this person would have, wait, wait a minute, I think we know someone. Actually, she just arrived. She just arrived on Zoom Airlines. Uh, so wait, hold on, I think it's, who is it? <gasps> Reverend Kim Jackson, is that you? Hi, everyone, it's good to be here. Oh my gosh, she made it here on the Priest and Rabbi podcast. Reverend Kim, so, so you're also Reverend Kim, but also you're candidate Kim because you're you're the one who's running for that open state senate seat in Georgia. That's right, that's right. Oh my gosh, well, well, well Rabbi, you just called it into being. You got a prophetic voice. So we, we, we have the wonderful Reverend Kim Jackson who's also running for the open state senate seat in Georgia. And she is gonna help us parse this out of how do we allow our faith to inform our politics and not get sucked into sometimes where culture is trying to tell us, no, actually your politics inform your faith, which can become pretty dangerous and uh, look like a golden calf. So let's, uh, let's, let's get into this. Reverend Kim, are you ready? I'm absolutely ready, thanks so much. Rabuni, are you ready? Born ready. <laughs> All right, everyone. This is the next episode. Please subscribe. Um, and and we, you look at all the topics. We really like to get topics that really get that, that rattle your cages and get you excited about some stuff. So share this podcast with others. Anyone else you know who would like to hear from a ridiculous priest and a wonderful rabbi? I mean, we get good guests like the Reverend Kim Jackson. And um, share this, subscribe with others, it helps us grow. Even if you think this show is absolutely ridiculous and you put that in the comment section, it actually helps our analytics. So you're doing us a favor. So help us out here and we are gonna get ready to roll with Reverend and candidate Kim Jackson. Let's go. A priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi. The opinions you hear from on this show do not represent WSTU, since they probably regretted overallowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, Grab your Bible or Torah and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. Okay, okay, okay. Good morning, everyone out there in Martin County and beyond, all the way from Yemen to Orlando. 
just if you're first turning in this is a priest and a rabbi my name is father christian anderson from saint mary's episcopal church here in steward florida and next to me is the most handsome rabbi you've seen this side of the jordan river it is rabbi matthew derber from temple beth Chaim, and we together are a priest and a rabbi we adore each other we have lunch and now we just have Zoom meetings. But in any event, uh, this is another episode we love to take on things that are um, hot and fun. Sometimes we go Taylor Swift, sometimes we go President Trump. It doesn't matter, everything is fair game through the Judeo-Christian lens. Um, Rabbi, good morning, how are you, brother? You're looking good, you're looking ready to roll, you look very passionate, you're probably well-rested because the Super Bowl of Judaism just, just, you got through it, buddy, you got through it. I did, I did, you know, it was a, um... It was actually a a much tougher season than I thought um, it would ever be. All you had to do Uh, was look into a camera. All you had to do was look into a camera. All you had to do was look into a camera. What are you worried about? Yeah, I mean, not so much just the the logistics of it. It it was more of the uh, spiritual connection of really broadcasting our High Holy Days and all of our services uh, to a vacant uh, sanctuary. Um, It just, you know, although... My soloist and I obviously lead Shabbat services and I lead Shabbat morning services um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an empty sanctuary. Something about those, uh, those important holidays that uh, was left to a, a very vacant building was, um, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult. Definitely took you, a lot of you, time. Well, I know that you're a tender hearted guy, so I can, I can definitely see the heartbreak in your eyes right now. Uh, but you know, there was a priest out in, I believe, Rome and then this other priest started doing this, where they would take pictures of their parishioners, their congregants, and then place them on all the seats. Do you ever think about doing that? You know, just get all the pictures of your congregants, have your daughters run around the temple and tape them, and then you would have the audience you always wanted. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, because I actually thought for a while about getting little tiny baby dolls and putting them on the chair. <laughs> um, just so that, just so that the, the appearance at least uh, was that was that we, you know, I, I I'm I'm we're it doing like the beginning of a B horror movie, uh, like, you, like yes. your worst nightmare. You walk in, there's like little baby dolls taped to all the seats. Yep, yep. You know, we started doing this is something ridiculous. So so our AV guy started bringing in a blow up um, reindeer, and, mm. and so he would place that right in front of me, and he's like, just preach to that thing. It looks better on camera because you keep on. Well, I mean, you guys are in the right season, right? I mean, it's 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 October, and you know, uh, time to get up ready for for the Christmas celebrations. For us to celebrate, you know, the birthday of our favorite Jew. So you know, I mean, there are countries like England, but you know, what is it after Labor Day weekend? They start putting up all the Christmas decorations on Oxford Street and everywhere else. Um, three months before, um, I think we're, we're we're in good time for that. Yeah. So uh, speaking of which, you know, do, so, so do you think, you know, our, our, our city of Stewart, is, is there a menorah that goes up anywhere in Stewart? I, you know, we used to do, um, uh, when it was Martin Memorial Hospital South, the one on Salerno Road, they, um, I think at one time, I think it was about five years ago, they did a public menorah lighting for Hanukkah, uh, to okay. which we were invited. Okay. Um, I don't think that it's maintained itself. They haven't done that. Um, we do it in the congregation. We do it in the community. Yeah. Um, I know certainly Chabad does it as well. Uh, but there's there's really no formal formal. Um, well, listen. Let's basis. say this on air. If you want to do some kind of public lighting of the menorah, and since it would be outdoors, if you have it over at the temple, invite St. Mary's. And since it's outdoors, we could do safe distancing and all that stuff. Okay. We could come over, and then you can explain to us heathens, I mean Gentiles, why you all, well, what it all means, the significance of it. How's that sound? Yeah, no, I love the idea. I love it. We love said it. that in the presence 40. of a priest 
as recorded, because we do have Reverend Kim Jackson, who is on the line, who is going to be, so she heard this, so she will hold us to it. Um, so listen all today. Today, uh, we, we do have the Reverend Kim Jackson. Um, why? Well, because she's awesome. But other is that Reverend Kim Jackson is an Episcopal priest who also is running. She is running for the open state Senate seat in Georgia. And there is so much talk right now about our politics influencing our faith. And as people of faith, we need to not fall to that temptation because the outside forces are going to want you to, they're going to want to say, listen, you people of faith, if you really want to follow the way that you're following, you need to follow this guy or this party. And we have political leaders who are sometimes even suggesting a relationship close. We heard it last night um, to, to political figures, you know, I mean, to religious figures. Um, so I think last night there was an allusion to someone uh, that Trump said about Jesus Christ as first, and he, he's like a second, you know, the uh, alluded to. Some people might not have interpreted that way. But we're getting to this dangerous place of where we're taking our political figures and having some sort of relationship to messiahs and other religious figures which I hope for everyone in the, in the religious community that, that, that gives you time to pause and be like, ah, I'm not sure I like this relationship because there's, there's no human being here on earth um, that, that has that kind of like closeness. We, we already had a Messiah if you're a Christian. And then as Jews, you, you, you already know the one it's Yahweh. So we're good. We're good. Um, but we want to talk about this. It's important for us as people of faith. How do we allow our faith to inform our politics? And I think having someone like Kim on today, Reverend Kim, who knows both worlds very well. I want to get to hear her story. Uh, so allow me to just shut up and bring on uh, Reverend Kim, who has flown in all the way on Zoom Airlines to be here this morning. She has a busy schedule. She's out there campaigning, um, and she took time out to be here and a priest and a rabbi. So Reverend Kim, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you all. Yeah, so you, uh, so how, you know, you're, 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 Let's get this straight for everyone. You're not a full-time campaigner. You are a full-time priest. You are a vicar of a congregation in Atlanta. And we got to talk about that because it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful, unique congregation. If it's right for me to say this without walls in a way. Um, and you're running a campaign for a state Senate seat. So first, tell us what life is like for you right now, since you have, you're juggling uh, two full-time commitments, plus you're married. Um, you know, you, 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 got, you got a lot of things going on. So just tell us about your life. <laughs> sure. Well, my life is a lot like this. Staring into a Zoom camera uh, for my campaign. Lots of town halls that we do virtually. And then, uh, yes, I do. I serve an incredible congregation of people who are experiencing homelessness in downtown Atlanta. And so I do go out um, four days a week and uh, do ministry with them. And so um, it's, a, it's a juggling act, you know, but it's a fun juggling act in many ways. And um, I've actually really feel like my ministry has been enhanced by getting to meet so many different people in my district. And I think that my district is enhanced by the work and ministry that I do because I, I know people who are experiencing homelessness and I can talk about that issue, which for many people is something that's you know deep on their hearts. And so um, while it's complicated and sometimes some balls get dropped, it's it's a lot of fun. And Kim, Kim just, just for our, our audience out there, um, you know, a, a, a little bit about, about you personally, you know, what, what brought you to the priesthood? I mean, was it, did you always feel um, this calling or this connection to community? Was it something that, you know, you developed when you were, you know, later in life in college or in high school, you know, what, what, what brought you to the priesthood? 
Sure. So I grew up in South Carolina in a small church, um, small church in a small city and um, really felt called to ministry when I was eight years old. I actually wrote about it in a journal. That's how I know for sure, because I journaled about it at age eight that I felt called to be a pastor. Um, but I grew up in a Baptist tradition in the 80s when uh, women were not allowed to be ordained. And so when I expressed that desire to my pastor, he told me as much, you know, you're a girl, you can't, you can't be a pastor. Um, but thankfully, I went to college. And even though it was a small liberal arts college in South Carolina, the college chaplain there, um, he saw me and he said, I think you have a calling on your life. And I was very bold and just said, that's not possible. I'm a woman. And he took me by the hand and he says, no, like, let me walk you through some scripture. And, um, and then he actually put me in his car and drove me around Greenville, South Carolina, and introduced me to women who were serving as pastors, which was the best thing that he could have possibly done for me, right? So like, it was no longer a theory. It was in the flesh. Here are women, people who look like you, who are doing this, who are living into this calling. And so that really did launch me on this journey. Wow, that, that really inspires me just with uh, our, our young, our youth upcoming leaders to go the extra distance and say, well, the first thing I thought about is, well, I can never put a, a teen in my car and go for a drive now with hard safe church policies. But still just to be not to, that's like to be about it. Don't talk about it. You say, I'm going to bring you to these other leaders and get influence. That's so awesome. But you know what, but, 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 but that instance and that, that experience I think is actually, is, is remarkable and is beautiful and actually says as a clergy, what our role really is. Because in, instead of the, the, you know, the priest saying to you, Kim, well, there are many examples of women being, being priests and this and the other, the, the, you know, being able to actually put you in the trenches to be able to see it and to experience it. And I know Christian, uh, you know, Father Anderson, you know, you're big on the word, you know, panim al panim, face to face, to be able to see somebody on where they are and their influence and their, their ability um, to, to, you know, to make this happen. I mean, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Remember Kim, when was the moment then, then you decided, I mean, did you first go through college and have get your hands deep in a, another vocation before you decide to go off to seminary or how did that work? No. So I, well, I went to college um, and that was my freshman year, actually. It was an eight o'clock AM class, my freshman year, where I had that encounter of saying of, of a professor and then a chaplain saying to me, you, you're called. Uh, and so after I graduated from undergrad, I immediately went to seminary. Oh, wow. Um, and I came to seminary in search of a denominational home. Again, I was raised Baptist, um, and that still was not going to be, uh, that wasn't going to fly in terms of me being an ordained pastor and, you know, Calpin, South Carolina as a woman. And so um, while in seminary at Candler School of Theology at Emory, I found an a denominational home called the Episcopal Church and um, really fell in love with the liturgy and with um, you know, communion, I think for, for me, watching somebody celebrate communion for the first time in the, in the Baptist church, you know, it's all symbols and it, it just looks really different um, than all the smells and the bells that, that we have in the Episcopal church. And there was something just deep in my soul that said, this is right. Um, this is good. And so um, after I had that experience, I, I needed again to see someone who looked like me. And specifically, I needed to see a black woman who was a priest 
in order to know that this could be my denominational home. And so I went down to Southwest Atlanta and, you know, that second Sunday of my encounter with the Episcopal Church, there was a Black woman who had an Afro who was celebrating communion. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is me. This is the place for me. Um, and so I've been an Episcopalian ever since. So um, like just, 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 um, um, uh, for those that may not be familiar with it, and I, and I, I, I certainly am in that camp. If, if, if I grew up Baptist and I decided to change denominations and go Episcopal or even go Catholic, um, is it, is it, is it seemingly as easy as just saying this is what I wish to do and just attach myself to that? religious denomination are there things that you have to let go of your own religious background to adopt a new religious background are there limitations or restrictions are there classes are there things that you have to do almost like conversion to go to another movement or is it just my heart is with the episcopal faith and therefore i'm going to align myself with them and they <clears throat> i mean what's the process no, Rabbi, they're, they're classes that you have to take. It's an entire confirmation process. It's, um, it's an invitation for you to make a proclamation of faith as, a, as an adult or a person who is able to understand what you're saying. Um, and then, so yeah, I took a series of classes. A bishop had to lay his hands on me and, um, and, and confirm me as an Episcopalian. But, you know, it is still a part of the large umbrella of the Christian church. So there was nothing that I had to renounce um, beyond just the general renouncing of Satan and all of Satan's wiles, right? Which we do that as Baptists anyway. Um, but it was a lot of just the classes in terms of learning about the Episcopal church, the history of the church and, and the theology and the ways that, that people who are Episcopalian think and believe. Okay, can you share also, because I think this is, this is, this is like turning into more of like how to become an Episcopalian podcast, which, which it won't, I mean, we're going to get into the thick of this stuff, but just you, you expressed how the bishop laid his hands on you. Why is that significant? I, I don't think we've talked about this after a hundred shows here um, of, of that significance and what it means to be an apostolic uh, faith. So can you, can, can you, can you just touch upon that real quickly? Right. Yeah. So I can speak about it for ordination because that actually happened nine months after I was confirmed. Um, so the same bishop laid his hands oh. on my head again uh, to to confer or to ordain me as an as a deacon at the time. But um, you know we understand that God and that Jesus um, ordained um, a number of, of apostles to go out to establish the church. Right? They were kind of twelve apostles who he sent out to establish the church. And um, over the course of all of these years, um, we understand that people in that descendant line of the apostles have laid their hands on other people and sent them forward uh, to continue to do the work in the ministry of the church. And so, um, you know, I have a friend who has a map where he can kind of map back all of the different people who were ordained before him, um, all the way back to the apostle Paul, which now, you know, how real is that? Who knows? But um, that is, that's really the tradition that we sit in is this understanding that um, we acknowledge that we, we come from Jesus um, through a number of other people who were first called um, by Jesus to go and, and do the work of the church. Well, speaking of call, then at a certain point, you also feel another call in your life. And I would assume this is something that I'm assuming here that, that, that God was behind it. And, and so this call to be a public servant. 
And so can you track, can you help us uh, follow the, the, the Reverend Kim Jackson uh, line here of how it says, okay, now politics is going to jump into this at a certain point. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, at eight, I felt called to ministry at 13. I, um, I don't know that I would use the word call at the time, but now I'm very clear. I felt called to run for elected office. And that happens as a result of just being a, a part of a group of kids. Um, we were all in middle school who were taken around to learn about public service. So in the morning, we went to the firefighters and learned about firefighting. And we met with the police officers. And we went to the city jail and actually saw like a whole like SWAT team experience. And and then the end of the night, we ended up at the city council. And um, while I was sitting there listening to them discuss which roads they wanted to pave for the mm. first time, um, <laughs> I had this light bulb moment of, oh, like, this is how you make change in the world. And at that point, you know, I didn't know the how, I didn't even know the where, but I knew that the what of my life was that I was called to make change in the world. And so I was seeing that happen in front of me with elected office and that moment was there. And I knew at some point um, I would wanna run for office because that's how you make real change. At 13, 13. This, is what's, this is what's going through your head. Your other people are thinking about, you know, the Taylor Swift outfit I can get or album. You're thinking like, how do I change the world? Yeah, I mean, All I was right. thinking about, it wasn't Taylor Swift, but I was I was thinking about those things too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that, that was that was kind of my call at 13. And then of course it's been reaffirmed over the years. And um, again, I'll highlight my college chaplain who, you know, at that point I knew like I wanted to be an activist. I knew I wanted to run for office in college. And so this call to ministry that he was saying I could do um, didn't feel like it fit, but he introduced me to um, the head pastor of the AME church in downtown Greenville, who was really living the life of like both doing activism and ministering to his congregation. And so I went to my very first rally with him. I met Jesse Jackson with him. Like I learned how to be a activist pastor, if you will, you know, on the ground when I was in college. And so I, I saw the ways that those two things could be combined. So this becomes a big part where it seems like by tracking, tracking your life so far, um, which makes sense that now you'd be running for the Georgia State Senate. Um, and if you're just tuning in here where we have Reverend Kim Jackson with us, who is running for the Georgia State Senate seat um, here on a priest and rabbi, uh, you, you start to enter this world of, there's this term here, of public theology, where you are out in, in the public square doing, that's where you find your call. I mean, obviously you're, you're called to serve a parish, Right, but then there is there is this there's the public for, the public square is calling you. Can you explain more what what that means when um, public theology and and really being called to be an activist that that's how you 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 find your your work as a priest? Yeah, so I I came up in a in a tradition um, through seminary that talked about the importance of bringing our faith to the public square. That um, our faith, our, our people as people of faith, whether that's Jewish or Christian or Muslim, that as people of faith, our our faith traditions have something to say about how we might order our lives together as community. Um, and and so for me. 
I have been really intentional about saying as a person of faith, particularly as a Christian, um, we have a responsibility to address some of the, the major societal problems that we experience. And the way that you do that is through the public square, right? And so essentially it's doing theology in public, right? It's, it's talking about the ways that kind of God perhaps has created us, called us into being as a world and as a society and, and saying like, we need to talk about this and its implications for how we govern one another. You know, so for me, the, the big issue that I've spent a lot of time on has been addressing the death penalty. And I speak very strongly against the death penalty explicitly as a person of faith, saying that you know my scriptures have taught me that God created us and that God has called us sacred and holy and invites us to not ever destroy life, right? Um, that God is, is, is for life. Now we can have a other people use that to mean something else, right? But um, but that that life is that life is sacred and should not be should not be taken. And so I, I speak very publicly about that as a person of faith and and call on political leaders uh, to to think about that in that way as a value statement, right? Um, so that's that's some of what it looks like. And and I think for me. Jesus's invitation for us to care for the poor, to care for those who are sick, um, to, to visit those who are in prison, right? Like those, those invitations that Jesus offers us, um, I've been really clear about saying that those are the invitations that God offers us and saying that publicly, saying that with a microphone in front of me in the middle of a rally, that God has called us to do this work. And therefore we, we need to engage in the political structures to make sure that People get healthcare that they need, right? Um, that make sure that we have criminal justice reform that we need so that people who are in prison can, can ultimately experience some freedom, right? That's, that's kind of the work that I've been, that's the milieu in which I've been working. Yeah, in the beginning of that, it was key is that you said, this is, this is not just about activism for activism's sake. Because you were a priest, because you are a, a committed Christian in your life that for you, this is what my scripture tells me. So it makes complete sense that as a priest, I would be doing this work because there is, um, I, I tell me, if have you gotten pushback at some point and being like, listen, you, your job is to be a priest and, and this, this social justice thing, you know, you're supposed to be focusing on transforming the hearts of the people who come to the church and you don't don't get this all like bringing us into social justice stuff. I, I hear I see that criticism all the time, um, which which I, I don't understand because it's but I think for you, I'm wondering if more people are able to follow your 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 lead because you stay entrenched in the scripture. And so how can you deny that when you're saying, no, I'm following Jesus to the jail. I'm following Jesus into the public square. This is not about me or about what I think it should be right. My my savior's leading me to it, but have do you have you gotten a lot of pushback because of the work you do? Yeah, sure, absolutely, and and certainly people interpret scriptures differently than I do, and and so their conclusions um, can be different than the ones that I come to in terms of the the issues that I take up around activism. Um, but yes, for me, fundamentally, I don't know how to follow. I don't know any other way to follow Jesus. Mm. Um, that, that this is the way, and I, and I fully acknowledge and accept that other people can follow Jesus a different way. But for me, when it comes to following that Messiah, that, you know, that man who came and, and healed the sick and, um, and, and spoke to the powers and told them that we can make a different kind of world, for me to follow that Jesus, this is, this is how it looks like. It looks like speaking truth to power. It looks like fighting for social justice. Well, this is so this I can see where now it would make sense that with all the work you've done, that the next step or, or, or 
the next step, it makes sense that you would want to say, okay, now let's loose really go for starts to change, maybe changing some laws, changing some legislation, changing the ways that we really do things together as a community. Um, and so, and then when we come back from break right now, we're going to jump into that of how Reverend Kim Jackson now, with her eyes on the Georgia State Senate seat, how does this, this, this what's the through line of all this great activism she's been doing as a priest by following Jesus? How does that now look as a potential Georgia State Senator? Uh, and how is her faith informing the work she does um, as a potential uh, state senator of Georgia? So we're going to take a quick break to hear about the people who make this show possible. And when we come back, we'll continue with part two with Reverend Kim Jackson here on A Priest and a Rabbi. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. Hey, everyone. This is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked, though, was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center. And so you can call if you're looking for a counselor or someone to be there for you during a challenging time. And you can call the church at 772-287-3244. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence 
um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, and welcome back to part two of A Priest and a Rabbi. Shout out to Starstruck and Mr. Peter over there who made this theme music. He came on the show, or at least his wife Jennifer did, and we said, you're making our theme music, and here it is. We are uh, continuing with part two. Um, in the first half, we learned who is Reverend Kim Jackson, the Episcopal priest who is now running for the open Georgia State Senate seat. Uh, and uh, her life could be uh, taking off really soon and getting even crazier um, after November 3rd. Um, and why and how does her faith inform her this political movement in her life? Um, so, Reverend Kim, um, you, you, in the first half of the show, you really did talk about how did you get to this place where it's just very logical of you to say, I'm going to now run for this seat. So uh, just write, just take a quick step back before that. Um, you're out there, you're, you're in the public square, you believe in public theology, you're serving the poor, you're doing all these things that Jesus has led you to do. You felt the call at 13 to, to be a public servant, to run for office. But what was the point where you were like, now is the time? You're a full-time priest, but then you're like, but now is the time too where I'm going to run for office and especially in this environment yeah so i this has been i've really been preparing for this um since i i moved to georgia i've kind of put down the roots and um about five years ago so so part of this is trying to figure out like what office do I want to run for? Um, you know, I had that epiphany moment at a city council meeting, uh, but I don't live in a city, so that wasn't an option. And um, I got involved with a, a program that took women down to the Capitol to learn how how to work with um, with, with legislators to get bills passed. And uh, we worked on a bill together as 10, a group of 10 women to get a rape kit bill passed, which um, rape kits are, you know, these these kits that are taken when when a woman has been sexually assaulted. And in Georgia, those kits were just sitting on shelves, not being processed, like just collecting dust essentially on shelves in hospitals um, and at police stations. And so we came together and introduced a bill, had a legislator introduce a bill for us to get those rape kits counted and processed. And um, that passed in Georgia unanimously in both houses on the very last night of session. And seeing that that happened was that kind of crystallizing moment that said, yes, I want to be in the state capitol because I know this is the place where we can where we can make things move. And as red as Georgia is in terms of, uh, you know, kind of political structures, it's still a place where unanimous decisions get made on behalf of making Georgia better. And so that's that's the space that I chose. And so it's kind of just a matter of waiting for the right time in terms of waiting for an open seat. But but I've known for, for about the last five years that I had my eyes set on being a part of the, the General Assembly in Georgia. Yeah, just, just another you know side note here, how important it is <laughs> to do the work, do the preparation. So, you know, you have your goal, 
you have the cheese that's being dangled in front of you. So you know where you're going, but you got to do a lot of preparation emotionally, intellectually, uh, vocationally. Okay. And so then uh, you've, you've worked, you know, in Atlanta, you were one of the, the big boy churches, you know, you're, you're, you're at the one of the big Cardinal parishes, right? It, right. it was like, what do you call it? Big steeple? Big, big steeple church. Yeah. Big steeple church. Right. And so you got it. You had a pretty, 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 a lot of people would love to have had uh, the, the gig you had. So there a certain point you said, all right, I, I'm going to commit myself and, and it, I guess where in your, was it hard to make the juggle of saying, I'm going to, did you ever think you were going to become a full-time politician or did you always know you're going to be bivocational? I still don't know the answer to that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I think we're, this is an experiment. We're kind of traveling, we're, we're trying it all out. Uh, you know, when you when you decide to run for office, you don't know if you're gonna win. Um, you run because you want to win, you anticipate winning, uh, but you don't know if you're gonna win. And so I don't quite have all the puzzle pieces fit together exactly, um, but I do know that I'm deeply committed to continuing to serve my congregation and um, that Georgia pays their legislators as a quarter time position. So um, I think they think I can do this as a quarter time, <laughs> as a quarter time politician. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, you know, we'll try it out. Okay, great. Um, so what, 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 has there been any, during this process of running for office, have your ethics and values and your faith, has there been times just because, listen, for all of us who are not a part of the system, um, we are not actively involved in running for office and being in office. We sometimes there's, we, we, we get a pretty convoluted image. You know, it looks dirty. It looks like sometimes you have to shake hands with the devil in order to make, I was just talking to a prisoner last night and um, we were talking about, I actually, I referenced you from our pre-production call saying that, you know, neither one of these parties is bringing the kingdom of God, right? Uh, they, they, I all have good things that can make a dent, but, but not, none of them can be attributed to saying they're bringing the kingdom of God. Um, However, she was like, yeah, but it's all kind of a filthy game. I mean, you have to shake hands with the devil in order to get things moved. If you want to get this bill passed, you're going to have to give something that you really don't believe in because of the there's pork that's attached to a bill, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have there been times where it's been a struggle for you because you, such are, you are really a deep woman of faith who follows your savior where you're like, I, I, can't, I can't do that? Or, or is it or you have not unfortunately have to confront that yet? Yeah, so Christian, two things. I Before I decided to run, um, before I launched my campaign, I, I spoke with uh, three different legislators, all whom were members of, of that big, big steeple congregation. And my first question to them was, can you be a successful legislator and maintain your integrity? Now, I, I know that's a that's right. kind of a trick question and, and who wants to go on the record saying, yeah, no, you can't maintain your integrity. But we had a private conversation, right? And, and they all said, absolutely, you can maintain your integrity and still be a faithful and a successful legislator. And so that's what I needed to hear because yes, there is this sense of, you know, it's dirty um, that you have to compromise and, and make deals with the devil. Like that is the, the lore, but I just needed to know for sure what was possible. And, um, you know, having also worked at the Capitol and done a lot of work down there, I'm, I'm clear, I believe them. Um, and I'm also clear about my own integrity that I come um, very committed to not making deals with the devil, right? Uh, and, you know, the second, the second thing that I 
really worked on was decide like who would I take money from. So right. in this work of politics, right, uh, money is money is king, and you have to raise a lot of money to run a successful campaign. And so I did make some decisions about who I would take money from and who I wouldn't take money from in order to maintain my own sense of integrity. Was that tough at some points because there was some good checks that could have come in and you're like, oh, that'll be very helpful, but I just, I just can't. No, I, I will say I've always felt like the money that I've needed has been provided and it's been supplied from sources that I felt were trustworthy and, and safe that, you know, money that I, I have turned down, someone else has been able to make up for it in, in ways that felt good. And so it's, it's been okay. I mean, I think, yeah, things have been provided for. You are, yes, you, 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 you walk the walk. Sister, you walk the walk. You remind me of uh, the uh, trying to who's Megan Good's husband in Hollywood. He's a big producer, um, uh, not a big producer. I think he's a VP of a studio. I'm embarrassed. I can't think of his name. Anyhow, he's a very committed Christian, and so you know Hollywood is seven days a week, especially if you're in a position like him. But he says, because of my faith, I take Sundays off. So if there's a deal we have to get done. I can't be there. And you would think you would lose your job completely. But instead, his, his career has really taken off. And I it's the idea that if you really believe in this God who's going to provide for everything, that if you be able to stay obedient to him and follow him, he will provide. And I'm sure that's going to come up a lot for you because there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to be like, oh, but we could really kind of make some big forays into this area or maybe get this money. Um, but you're just trusting to say, well, I got to stay committed to, to my Lord. And, uh, and to but it, 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 it's interesting because what we're also saying too, is that I'm, I'm staying committed to my, to my sense of morality, my sense of ethics, my sense of uh, commitment to my community. You know, I'm reminded years ago of, uh, uh, of an instance where uh, my home synagogue is a very large reform synagogue, a couple thousand families. And, um, at that time, I think it was like in the 70s, they were interviewing for a senior rabbi for the senior rabbi position of the synagogue. And you know, this rabbi comes in and he's having this interview. And halfway through, he stops and he says, You have to excuse me. I have to leave. And you know, the board says, you know, Rabbi, if you leave, your candidacy is over. And he said, uh, you know, please forgive me, but I, I promised my mother that I would take her to a doctor's appointment. It's very important to me. And he stood up and walked out. And the congregation then hired him and said, because of your values and your ethics that you hold dear, the fact that you would give up an interview for your family shows us your commitment and your dedication to the values and the ethics of, of what we subscribe to. And it speaks to him, it speaks to the, the values of that congregation. So it was a very good match. And if they didn't like that, they're like, hey, man, business has got to come first. And that wouldn't have been a good match anyhow. So that's that's great. Yeah, that's so let's so tell. So, so Reverend Kim, so now uh how, how, now that you're in the game, so has there, it doesn't sound like there's been a tension for you. It seems like it's, these decisions are obvious for you that, that, yeah, it's good. It might hurt sometimes because you're like, oh, that would have been nice to have that opportunity, but you're, you're pretty grounded in your faith and in your heart where you know the right decisions to make. So it hasn't, is it right to say that it hasn't been um, a struggle of, of this conflict between faith and politics? No, I mean, I think that I have always had to ask questions like, I mean, these are I've been presented with some new questions that I've never had to wrestle through before. And so while I am deeply grounded and committed and, and have a real sense of where my ethical and moral stance, um, you know, stances are, 
there's still been new questions that have been introduced that have challenged those. And I've had to think like based on my morals and ethics, how do I wanna to respond to this? Uh, and so, no, it hasn't always been easy. And um, I'm also clear that there are people who sit in my very position who could be very faithful people who may have made different decisions out of their own sense of faith um, around some of these questions. And so mm. um, I don't, I don't, I don't suggest that I've always gotten it right um, along the way here. And um, it certainly has been difficult at times. I mean, there's some things that are just clear and true and like, no, I'm just not gonna do that. But but there are, there's a lot of gray. And I think that that's what people don't talk about. And um, particularly in politics, it is often um, a competition between competing, um, competing priorities, right? So if you think about a state budget, uh, we care about public education. Right? That's really important. Like we want our kids to have good public education. Well, and we have a finite amount of money and we care about other things. Um, and so figuring out those competing pro um, priorities can be a challenge, right? Um, and so that's, I think I am constantly wrestling with those things. So, so Kim, you know, in that example itself, um, you know, how do you, how do you determine for yourself what your top priorities are and what can what can wait, what needs to be put at the top of the agenda? You know, I, I mean, I, I assume a majority of that is based on your passion and what you're excited about and, and really where that void or where that need needs to be uh, put into place. Yeah, some of it certainly is my own thoughts. And a lot of it also comes from the constituents, right? The people who live in my, my district have been really clear about their priorities. And I have a responsibility to them to take on their priorities. And so for the people in my district, public education is the priority. Absolutely. Um, they would even put that ahead, many of them, of things like Medicaid expansion or access to healthcare, right? Public education, taking care of our kids, keeping them out of the streets is the priority and so therefore I carry that torch. It happens to fit really well with me because I care a lot about public education too, um, but they they really have kind of laid out for me, I think the, the way forward. Um, and there, there are a number of other things, like I, I live in a district that has a lot of refugees, people who have come from war-torn countries and have resettled here in these United States and specifically in my district. And so they have some special needs um, and special desires that, um, that make their priorities kind of rise up to the top in a way that other legislators probably don't care about because they don't have a huge population of refugees living in their district, right? And so that's, that's been a guiding principle as well. You're going to have a great uh, pulse and, and you're going to have great compassion, well, you already do, for the people you serve. And I think that's just that you can tell that's a big, re that's, that seems like to me one of the main reasons why you're doing this, um, as opposed to maybe a politician who doesn't live in the neighborhood they're serving, doesn't really understand the context. It's almost like a, like a priest or a pastor or a rabbi. It's like you, you don't really know the community you're serving. Like you kind of live 45 minutes away and, um, and nothing, I, I, I actually I don't want to criticize priests and pastors and rabbis who are in that situation because that sometimes it's just circumstances. Um, but it, it is a great benefit, let's put it this way, when you are immersed in the community that you're serving and you uh, the, the sense I get, or you're immersed in the needs of the people you're serving, and and you really want to speak for them. So that's that's probably served you extremely well as a priest and will as a politician. Um, how, what is the pushback you've gotten though from from your constituents where they might be concerned be, of you because of your collar? And yeah. so, to me, it seems like oh, this is perfect fit. I mean, this woman is following Jesus and she's going to be with the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. Amen, sister, go get it. But there's probably other people who are like, whoa, oh wow, I am worried that you have that collar. 
Yes. So I get two different kinds of calls. One is from kind of the liberal, uh, they're often white women who are very progressive and they're very concerned about whether or not I'm pro-choice or not. Um, you know, they will go on my website and they'll say, like, I see you're a pastor. I see that you're anti-death penalty. So I just don't know. I need to tell you. I need I need you to tell me. I need to hear from your mouth. Um, where What is your stance on choice? And, and so that's one of the calls. And then the other call, is, is on the other side, which is, you know, very faithful, uh, very, very faithful Black women often will, will call me, or in this instance, um, my neighbor, who's a Black woman, she, she drove up, parked in my driveway, beeped her horn, had me come outside so that she could say, I know that you're a woman of faith, I know you're a strong dem, but this whole choice thing, I don't get with. I, I don't get with it. I'm still going to vote for you, but you and I, we're going to have to have some conversations about this, right? And so I get I get pushed back on both sides around the choice issue, and it's always grounded around me as a person of faith, right? They're suspicious, like you're a person of faith, you're a faith leader, so you can't possibly be, you know, can't possibly be for choice. Um, and then there are other people who are like, wait, you're you're for choice and you're a pastor? Like, how does that work? And so that's probably the biggest place of pushback that I've received um, around, particularly about having a collar. And then of course the other issues around, always people have questions about how do you separate church from state, right? Um, and I think that is an important question that people keep asking. I hope they ask it of more than just people who wear collars though. Um, <laughs> my, you know, my experience, the people who are most likely to, to really tread on those, those boundaries are not people who are clergy, but um, are, are people who, who, yeah, they're different people than me. That's all. Right. Well, I guess you never have, have you, to ask. Have them. you have you have you ever been in a situation where you've had to say to yourself, "Am I blending in church and state together?" And how, in certain circumstances or instances, that you've had to say to yourself, "Okay, I, I have to separate it out," or has it always just been a clear line between the two? So. The, the line is not clear, um, but my line for me is about partisan politics because that's the law. The law says that I cannot be partisan um, about people, right? So I, I would never stand in the pulpit and, and suggest that you should vote for any particular person. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my line. It's a hard and fast boundary. Um, I, I will say, you know, when I decided to run, you had to declare a party, right? Uh, I had to declare that I was running as Democrat, and that was very difficult for me to do mm -hmm. um, because I have never, heretofore, I have never had an identity that was automatically assumed to be in opposition to another person's identity. Oh, yeah. right? So like as a black woman, being black, nobody assumes that because I'm black, I therefore hate white people, right? Well, maybe somebody does, but most people don't, right? Like being a woman, nobody assumes that because I'm a woman, I therefore hate men. But suddenly when I signed up and said, you know, I'm a Democrat, there were people who automatically assumed that therefore I hate Republicans. And that was a new position for me to be in. It's not true for who I am. Um, I wasn't used to that. And so um, that's that's been probably one of the bigger struggles that I've, I've had. Um, and also I think maybe Rabbi and Father, you'll, you'll understand this, but as, as clergy, people are genuinely nice to us. Like, I don't like just, you know, I mean, generally speaking, people are relatively nice. They more or less trust us. But when I go out into the world, not in a collar, but as, you know, candidate Kim Jackson for state Senate, people are mean. Wow. Like, 
unabashedly, unashamedly just, ooh, you are a Democrat, you're running for office, therefore you must hate me, therefore you must not agree with me about these things, and therefore I will be mean. Um, and I'm not used to that, like, at all. And I don't want to ever actually get used to that, right? Um, I hope that we can come to a different place when it comes to how we deal with each other in, in partisan spaces. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as, as we near the end of the show here, I, I want you to kind of give us a, some, some wisdom and <laughs> as, as, as some coaching as a spiritual counselor, as a, so as a, as a pastor, uh, but also as someone who's got a foot firmly planted in politics, that a lot of people right now are, let's say there's some people right now who feel this conflict of saying, uh, I am a person of faith, but I'm sort of being directed by other leaders or by a camp or by a platform saying, if I vote this way, it's anti-faith or it's not faith enough. Um, and it's black and white, as you said, I mean, they before, they, 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 there seems to be presented this black and white answer for people of faith. And we all know that the gray, you know, it's, it's, it's in the gap, right, where we find the answers. How do you, what's your direction for those who are people of faith who are really trying to see where, where God is leading them in this vote, whether it's for the president or it's for any other candidate, whether it's in their, 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 their board of commissioners, like that we have here in Stewart, all the way to the White House. What's your guidance on how people can discern well and really listen to the still small voice of God to lead them in that vote and not have any other platform or leader tell them who they should be voting for if they really want to be, be a true person of faith? Yeah, so first of all, I invite people to be prayerful in their decision making, right, um, and to really go into their own internal inside space uh, and, and to be prayerful about the decision. Um, and, but then secondly, I invite people to, to sit down and make a list of what your values are. Um, you know, what are the values that you take from your faith, from your culture, from, um, you know, what, where, wherever your grounding are, is, what, what are those values? So, so write those down uh, and, and then to kind of hold up candidates and, and see how they rank in those values, right? Um, and, and I think what we'll see is that hopefully there'll be many candidates who will fit values who sit on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so then it'll be a prioritization of you know what are your what are your 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 highest values here and how do they and how do they fall there, um, and then this is the thing that I've learned that I've really appreciated from people who live in my district, is that people have actually picked up the phone and they've called me, mm -hmm. and they've just asked me outright you know what do you think about this issue how do, why do you feel this way I disagree with you but can you talk to me about why you feel that way, um, and I can't tell you how many people. I have had that conversation with, and at the end of the conversation, they've said, you know, pastor, can I pray with you? Mm -hmm. And then they have prayed with me over the phone. And at the end, we still believe different things about some, about some things, but because we've had a conversation, they've heard my voice, I've heard their voice. I think they've gotten a sense of where my heart is. Um, they've at least wanted to pray for me. I don't know if they voted for me at the end, but they've at least felt called to pray and be, be in a spiritual connection with me. And so if you've never called one of those people, I mean, you can't call the president, right? But like, you can call your commissioner and, and have a conversation and just get to know them. And the ones who don't answer the phone, maybe you don't want to talk to, you know, maybe not vote for them, right? Um, but I think that there are ways, um, you know, what I've learned more than anything about running for office is that we are humans. I am a human. I'm not just a politician. I am a person who has thoughts and heart and compassion um, and 
you can't always get that from my website. And so I invite people to pick up the phone or send an email and get to know those candidates on your on your ballot, particularly the lower level candidates, right? You, you know, your city council, your commissioners, because those are the folks actually that you're going to call when you need a new stoplight. Uh, you know, right? Those are the people you're going to call when you, you need sidewalks. And those are the people you're going to call when your school district needs help, right? It's not the president. Uh, so get to know those lower level candidates and, and then, you know, make that values list and, and be prayerful about it. I think God gives each of us uh, the ability to really kind of think through and to, to fill with our hearts, um, you know, the direction that's right for us. And so I encourage people to kind of shut out the other stuff. Yeah. And, and really, really turn inward. So, Reverend Kim, so if people want to learn um, more about you, and candidate Kim, I mean, you got, you got, we got a couple hats here. Um, how can they find more about you and learn more about you and maybe even potentially get in contact with you? Sure, sure. So, you can go to my website. It's kimforgeorgia.com. That's K I M for F O R Georgia.com. Or you can follow me on social media. Um, I'm Kim for Georgia on all handles uh, for social media. And you can go there, you can go to my website, you can sign up to get a newsletter, you can, you know, help, uh, help us out by sending us a donation. Um, but also, I want to just take a moment and lift up my congregation. Uh, again, it's a church without walls, and um, serving people who are experiencing homelessness in downtown Atlanta. And that's church for the common ground. Um, so if you go to church of the common ground.org, you can learn more about our congregation and the ministry that we're doing on the street of Atlanta. Reverend Kim, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know you probably do a million of these um, all the time, but you're, you know that you know that Israel, you probably get excited about this because you love, uh, you know, just being part of the community and sharing the good news and, uh, and, and developing more good news in our community. So um, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your heart, uh, telling us your story. Uh, we, uh, you know, Give you all of our blessings that uh, we can for all the good energy and for God to be with you and all the work that you do. Um, and uh, we're grateful. We're very grateful to have you on. So it's been inspiring. And, uh, so that, my friends, was another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. Rabbi, how are you doing over there? You got any good parting words for our community of faith? Well, I mean, I think, I think, I think, as as Reverend Kim had had had, had suggested as well. Look, you know, just just be informed. You know, um, as major decisions are happening in the next few weeks, um, you know, learn more about you know those to whom uh, are presenting themselves. Learn about their positions. Learn about you know whether it jives with your own personal ethics and your values, and and make an informed choice. All right, everyone. God bless you. You can catch this whole show on the podcast. Give a subscription to our podcast. We'll see you here next Friday on A Priest and a Rabbi. God bless you. Be safe and get some good hair product like the rabbi. Mm -hmm.